You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that knows that nothing gold can stay, unless you bury it in your backyard. Like, duh. I don't know why you couldn't have thought of that yourself. I'm Megan. Things aren't safe in your backyard. They are if you bury them deep enough. This is not sound financial advice. Well, this is not a financial advice podcast, luckily. No, but my podcast... Financing with RJ. Financing with RJ. Is an A-plus financial podcast, and this would be bad advice if you were a caller. Okay, well, none of that exists, so can we just move on with our show that we're actually on right now? Well, we could do, we really do an impromptu episode of Financing <laughs> with RJ, because I'm RJ. Yeah, welcome to the show within a show, Financing with RJ. RJ, what's your sound financial advice for this episode as you scratch at your beard? Well, one, don't shave. Cost Why? Time and money. And time is money, and money's time. Deep. Yeah, but also don't bury stuff in the backyard. See, you can't accumulate interest. The ground doesn't pay out. At best, when you bury it, you'll get back what you put in there. At worst, you're going to get less. Whereas if I go to a bank... At the minimum, I'll get the same amount out, but I'll probably even get extra out. And that was Financing with RJ. We now take you back to Ono Lit Class, already in progress. So today we are talking about a book by one of my favorite authors, just in general. J.D. Uh, Salinger. No, Ray Bradbury. Oops. What? <laughs> Oops. Oh boy, Okay. Let's talk finances. We did that already. So Ray Bradbury is, yeah, he's one of my top five just like influences as a writer. And while Fahrenheit 451 is not my favorite book by him, it is the one that most people are familiar with that you usually have to read at some point in high school. It's all about the book burning and, you know, the high school, high school kids typically freshman, I think. I was in ninth grade when I read it. What about you? It was never assigned to me. Really? Yeah. Shit. So this is even one that I had to skip on. You just never just... even got to it. Nope. Did you have to read any Bradbury? Like, nope. There Will Come Soft Rains nope. or The Velt? Nope. Or... Man, you are missing out. Yeah, man, we had Orwell. Ray Bradbury is way more engaging. I mean, that's. I mean, to be fair, these are completely different things. Ray Bradbury is like a fantastical sci-fi guy. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Oh, well, he, he says he's not. Well, he says that he's a fantasy writer. I know. Oh, well, respect him. I do respect him. You're calling him something he says he's not. I said fantastical sci-fi. Oh, I'm saying no, the same he shit. he would disagree with you. Anyway. Representation matters. I have What? No, stop saying words. But yeah, I remember my dad uh, giving me a copy of The Martian Chronicles when I was 11 and just that it, like, blew my mind with how cool it was and when Ray Bradbury died back in 2012 like I cried you know like I'm not like yeah but like I teared up because he's just been a very important writer to me which is not to 
say that Fahrenheit 451 doesn't have some issues, but we'll get to that. Actually, the thing that I remember the most about having to read Fahrenheit 451 in high school was that we had an assignment where we had to be partnered up and we had to make like a little mini book, like a Cliff's Notes that gave like a synopsis of the the chapters and like make a little cover for it and shit. And I got paired up with an art girl and you know, we were like 13, so she was in that big-eyed anime art phase, and she didn't do any of the fucking work on it. I had to write the whole thing, and she drew the cover where Montag, the main character, is just like this pretty weird, slender, androgynous-looking anime boy, and then she just drew a bunch of flames around him, and then she drew a picture of us on the back. That was her contribution. Fifteen years later, I'm still bitter. You should have taken that guff. So, like you said, he is known for writing speculative fiction that kind of rides the line between science fiction and fantasy, mostly because Ray Bradbury don't give a damn how a thing works. If he wants to write about cool future technology and rocket ships and shit, he's gonna do it. And you're like, how does this work, Ray Bradbury? And he's gonna be like, I don't fucking know, just pay attention to the story. That's the good bit. Yeah. Yeah. Although he, as we're going to talk about in the book, he predicted a lot of, like, modern technology in the form that it would take, which was pretty impressive because this book came out in 1953. It's not a prediction if you time travel to the future and saw it with your own eyes. Are you suggesting that Ray Bradbury built a time travel device? Definitely not that he built it. Well, who did? Someone buried it in their backyard. Okay. And Ray Ray happened to find it. Ray Ray. Oh, geez. That's that's what we're going to do, huh? That's what he's affectionately known as by me. All right. Well, then, you know what? Let's not waste any more time. Let's get to the biography of Ray Bradbury. So Ray Douglas Bradbury, born August 22nd, 1920, died June 5th, 2012. He's affectionately known as Ray Ray. By who? Look, let's not get into the weeds here. So Ray Ray was born in Waukegan, Illinois, to Mom Esther, a Swedish immigrant, and Leonard Spalding Bradbury, a man of English descent. With a name like Leonard Spalding? Yeah, I can believe that. Leonard was a power and telephone lineman. He was a lineman for the county. So you see, Ray Ray, he knows a lot about telephones and electricity. Okay. Anyway... I just want to say one thing about Ray Ray and his name here. So that middle name, Douglas. Yeah. See, here on Ono Wick Class, we get a lot of people who are named after mom, dad, grandparents, uncle, whatever. It's refreshing when that doesn't happen. Yeah. In particular, Ray Ray here. Now, that middle name doesn't come from any family. Yeah, Douglas. (laughs) Doesn't come from any family. It's because his family liked an actor by the name of Douglas Fairbanks. Not anyone I heard of. You've never heard of Douglas Fairbanks? Nope. This is a famous old-timey actor. Well, he's not exactly a household name, Meg. No, I would say it's a pretty recognizable name. Maybe in the 1920s when he was big. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, people know, it's like Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, like, I don't fucking know. I think he's in the Charlie Chaplin movie with Robert Downey Jr., but I could be wrong. Anyway, anyway, you just don't know a thing. Continue. He, he played things like Zorro, Robin Hood, yeah, Don well, Juan, and D'Artagnan. Well, there you go. From The Three Musketeers, which I learned in my research is the first movie ever based on a candy bar. <laughs> Turn that frown upside down. Uh-huh. Every time you make a joke like that, you shave a year off my life. 
One less year with you means one extra year with me and the cat alone together. Now about this Douglas Fairbanks, what I found interesting is some of the characters he played had crazy names. How is this in any way relevant? Megan, he was in a movie called The Good Bad Man, which the title itself is strange enough. He was the lead character. Okay. His character's name was Passing Through. (laughs) Passing Through. Because at some point in the movie... He's just passing through. Someone asked him, what you doing there, stranger? He was passing through. That's his name. Can, can we, like, Ray Bradbury? Now... The, the, no. One no, more. No, no. I gotta tell you one more, because it's the best character name I've ever seen. This so, better be really fucking yeah, good. The movie's called The Americano. Okay. He played a character by the name of Blaze Derringer. Shit, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. God, I don't intend to ever have children, but if I do, I'm going to name him Blaze Derringer. There you go, see? I got the good facts. Good asides. So anyway, back to Ray Ray. So he's not related to Douglas Fairbanks. Parents are just a fan. He was related to Mary Bradbury, Uh. who at the ripe old age of 77 was convicted at the Salem Witch Trials and was sentenced to be hung. She she wasn't, though. She she, she got away. Lucky for her. (laughs) She never got hung. She died from natural causes before they ever got around to it. Well, you know, that's what procrastination gets you. Unhung witches. Well, no, it turned out then she wasn't a witch after all. She died. (laughs) (laughs) That's that that good uh, witch hunter logic right there. (laughs) She died and wasn't a witch. By the way, this uh, brings the Salem Witch Trials record to Owen Infinity. They never found one, you know. They're not, still out. They're still out there somewhere, hiding, doing doing witchy shit. Yeah, not for the lack of trying. So Ray Ray, he had a pretty big family, and apparently the entire family lived in the happening town of Waukegan. Yeah, you 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 said that. So I said he was in Waukegan. Okay. The whole family was in Waukegan. And what? Okay, neat. One would assume. I'm going to blow your mind with this next fact. Yeah. Ray Ray wrote about Waukegan quite a bit in his work. Yes, under the fictionalized name of Greentown. Look at you, you know all these facts. He's one of my favorite writers! Well, I don't know why you needed me in this episode. <laughs> to tell me about Douglas Fairbanks, apparently, <laughs> and, bla- and Blaze Derringer. You're very unthankful for this information. <laughs> anyway, from a young age, Ray Ray took a liking to reading and writing. He spent a lot of his time at the library, I said it, reading stuff from H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and Ono Lit Class alum, Eddie Allan Poe. Ray Ray began writing when he was 11. Given that this coincided with the Great Depression, paper wasn't all that easy to come by, so he wrote his stuff on used butcher pipe paper. Used butcher paper. Yeah. Something in character there. You were feeling that Great Depression. In that moment, you were in the dust bowl. Paper wasn't easy to come by, so he wrote his stuff on used butcher paper. Delicious, yet sanitary. Neither of those things. Apparently, throughout most of his early writings, it's pretty clear he was just trying to emulate Eddie Poe until he was about 18 when he began to branch out. But well before this time, Ray Ray was forced to spread his wings bigger than Waukegan, Illinois would allow him to. You see, Dadbury had a hard time keeping a job. You okay there? (laughs) Damn it, that was really good. This eventually forced the entire family to move away from Waukegan in 1934, when Ray Ray was 14. After a few short stays in Tucson, Arizona, the family settled into a small Hubble town known as Los Angeles. Caught irony. (laughs) 
You don't understand humor. I hate you. <laughs> when the Bradburys pulled on up into L.A., they had $40 between all of them. Luckily, Dadbury got a job that paid $14 a week. This put the Bradburys on easy street. Do you have any idea how that tracks in today money or no? Big. Mucho. Yeah? Yeah, sure. See, you have no idea. Just making shit up That's out here. One. Anyway, because Dadbury got the job, getting $14 a week, that meant the family got to stay, which pleased Ray Ray as he quickly fell in love with Hollywood, which today we know as the Western Hemisphere's answer to Bollywood. <laughs> Yeah, that one you like. <laughs> so, Ray Ray was a real go-getter. When he wasn't in school or doing the whole drama club thing, which he was big into, he would strap on some roller skates and just skate around Hollywood to try to meet some stars. This actually worked, and maybe it shouldn't be a big surprise. Ray Ray was just living four blocks away from the flagship theater for both Fox and MGM Studios. This was also within spinning distance of the real Brown Derby restaurant, not that fake baloney shit in the middle of Disney's Hollywood Studios. Is this the problem you have all of a sudden? Yeah. Okay. Are we focused <laughs> on the biography? I didn't realize we were putting Disney on blast. <laughs> <laughs> They're on notice. Okay. Ray Ray got to meet all sorts of early movie stars. Peeps like Mae West, Greta Garbo, and Cary Grant. But more importantly, when he was 14, he met George Burns, who hired Ray Ray to write for his show. Yep, 14 years old, and he scored a Hollywood writing gig. He didn't even need to do the requisite 20-year internship at a Starbucks first. Shit, man. Times were different. Now, much like Eddie Allan Poe, Ray Ray wanted to become a military man. And, much like Eddie, his hero, Ray Ray washed out of the academy. In particular, Ray Ray's eyesight was so bad that he was not allowed to serve, despite a small thing called World War II going on. God, he, I mean, if you look at pictures of him, he's got, like, the thickest glasses known to mankind, so this is not surprising to me. So, since he was not able to serve, Ray Ray did the next best thing. He started to write fantasy sci-fi. <laughs> As most people would call it, except Ray Ray. At 18, Ray Ray published his first story, and with the money he got from that, and the money he raised from some backers, he actually began to publish his own magazine. So did he do like an old-timey Kickstarter? Yeah. That's well, awesome. Well, he knew these people in Hollywood, because he was always on his roller skates, <laughs> and he was doing the George Burns show, and people were like, who's this crazy kid who's doing all this writing? they oh, that's Ray. And they'd be like, you mean Ray Ray? they go, yeah. And... They're like, here's some money, Ray Ray. Go write some stuff. Go find George Burns and wow him. Still don't know who George Burns is. He's the George Burns. Okay. Wow. You don't know who Douglas Fairbanks is. Don't give me anyway, shit. You know what? George Burns, a little more important in the scope of things, man. What did George Burns do? He was like in the public eye for 80 years. Doing... Radio shows, comedy. He was like a comedian. Ah. But then he was like just like the old man in movies. Okay. If you saw a picture of him, you'd probably know who he would. You'd be like, oh, it's that old guy. Ernest Borgnine. No, that's the guy <laughs> who gets erections on Fox News. <laughs> Gross. Are you pulling up a picture of George Burns? Oh, many pictures, yes. They... Is he related to C. Montgomery Burns? Perhaps. <laughs> well, Can you not? <laughs> yeah, something happened to you, eh? Let's try it in this window. George Burns. <laughs> This is, this is a great use of our time. <laughs> yep, nope, George Burns, no face confirmed. <laughs> yeah, he's no face. Oh, yeah, okay. See? Yeah, see? See? All right, yes, fine. 
He is that old guy. So, Bray Ray had connections, so people gave him money. So, after he published multiple issues of his own magazine, he began to sell short stories for modest payoffs, like $20 a piece. Eventually, he actually became a full-time writer and a journalist. And then, in his early 30s, while renting typewriter time at UCLA, Ray Ray hit his peak, writing The Fireman, which would later become Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, so at the time, typewriters weren't things most people just happen to own. Instead, people like Ray Ray had to use those typewriters at the library and pay 10 cents per half hour to do so. Word on the street is that it cost Ray Ray 980 to complete Fahrenheit 451, which means he typed it up in 49 hours. Damn. Now, there's an important thing I haven't covered. Okay. What specifically inspired Ray Ray to become a writer? Well, Ray Ray confided that he began to write every day due to two specific incidents. So the first one was that his mom took him to see a performance of The Hunchback of Notre Dame while he was a child. Oh, yeah, I do know this one. And that was really important to him. And I guess that's fair and normal enough. But the other bigger event was when he was 12 years old. Little Ray Ray was at a carnival. And while at the carnival, he met an entertainer by the name of Mr. Electrico. Well, Mr. Electrico broke out an electric sword and touched a 12-year-old Ray Ray on the nose while shouting, Live forever! Yeah, so that sounds pretty normal, too. An 81-year-old Ray Ray recalled, quote, I felt that something strange and wonderful had happened to me because of my encounter with Mr. Electrico. Eh, it was a different time. Also, this explains a lot of something wicked this way comes. He gave <laughs> me a future. I began to write full-time. I've written every single day of my life since that day 69 years ago. Mr. Electrico gave us Ray Ray. Don't fucking lie. Like, if you were 12 and some crazy, like, magic-looking dude at a carnival touched you with his magic electric sword and went, Live forever! You'd think that was baller as fuck. Ray Ray added that if he did not become a writer, he would have become a magician instead. So a few other things about Ray Ray. First, when... Ray Ray died in 2012, the New York Times credited him with being, quote, the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. The thing is, though, Ray Ray did not see himself as a sci-fi writer. He explained, quote, first of all, I don't write science fiction. I've only done one (laughs) science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451, based on reality. Science fiction is a depiction of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So, Martian Chronicles is not science fiction. It's fantasy. It couldn't happen, you see. That's the reason it's going to be around for a long time. Because it's a Greek myth. And myths have staying power. And his stories have, you know, definitely proved to have staying power, even as our own technology has outpaced them. He's sort of oscillated back and forth on how he personally feels about technology. Sometimes, you know, he's like, quit freaking out about computers, you dumb weenies. Oh, no, computers scare me. No, computers are awesome. The future's going to be great. Like, suck it up. But then in 2010, he was quoted as saying that there are too many cell phones, too many internets. Yeah, it got to that point where he was like, I'm old. I pluralized internet. What is an ebook? This scares me. But to be fair, at that point, dude was 89 flipping years old and had grown up in the Great Depression, as we said. So, like, imagine living in, like, fucking Dust Bowl times and living to see, like, iPhones and cat memes and shit. That's wild. You know, there's... People still alive that were yeah. born before Ray Ray. Yes, I know. I'm just I, I'm just saying like that specifically. But then he also got to see like his own 
te- technology kind of come to life around him too. But just just the idea in general of just being a really old person right now is just like damn. A little more Ray Ray potpourri. Ray Ray never got a driver's license. Just kept roller skating <laughs> forever. He either, he either took his bike, his roller skates. Or he relied on public transportation. This might also explain why he lived at home until he was 27. And to be frank, the only reason he managed to leave his parents' house was to get married to Marguerite McClure, who was known as, quote, the only woman Ray ever dated. Very romantic. Got it in one. Got him Got him out of his parents' house. <laughs> I just want to picture him as like a 60 or 70-odd-year-old man just roller skating on like those little 1930s strap-on roller skates. Eventually, Ray Ray's life of strangeness came to an end in 2012 after battling a number of illnesses and complications from a stroke he suffered in 1999. Despite the stroke and becoming physically dependent on others, he continued to write until his last days 13 years later, only retiring from circuit touring in 2009. That he kept literally rolling on bikes, roller skates, and public transportation. Yeah, he didn't even get on an airplane until 1982. There you go. And that is the story of Ray Ray Douglas Bradbury. Yeah, so in terms of technology, he's been said to have predicted everything from, like, flat panel televisions to earbud headphones and 24-hour banking machines, and all of this kind of comes up in Fahrenheit 451. And so that's part of what's kind of hard is you have, you know, kids today reading it and being like, who gives a fuck kind of thing. But, you know, at the time, in the 50s, people were just like, holy shit. What is this crazy future nonsense? So I feel like, you know, you got to give him, you got to give him some credit. You got to look at it in context. I mean, another interesting thing is that when he wrote Fahrenheit 451, TV was a thing, but only 1 million people owned TVs at the time. Uh-huh. And there were only the very basic channels that weren't even 24 hours a day because Seinfeld had not been invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> so Fahrenheit 451 was also heavily influenced by the fact that he lived through the Nazi book burnings during World War II, and so he had a lot of anxieties about that. And also McCarthyism at the time in the 50s, especially as a dude who was, like, heavily involved in Hollywood, where there was all of this, like, blackballing and communism, witch hunts and all that. There you go, witch hunts of a different sort. So there, there was a lot kind of going on that got him thinking about, like, you know, censorships and book burnings and technology and all that fun stuff. So without further ado, let's get right into Fahrenheit 451. So the book opens with... <coughs> I don't remember it opening that way. Yep, that's how it starts. The book opens with our protagonist, Guy Montag, a 30-year-old fireman whose job it is to start fires? What kind of crazy, topsy-turvy world has Bradbury created? In this world, firemen exist to burn shit down. And Montag loves it. He has all the job satisfaction you'd expect from someone who gets to play with a flamethrower all day. Generally, he burns books, sometimes houses, but he is down to burn whatever. He's DTF. Down to the flame. flame. The first couple paragraphs pretty much exist to hammer home that fire gives Montag just a monstrously huge boner. After a busy day of setting things on fire, Montag showers off with his co-workers and heads home, feeling like someone is watching him. And someone is. It's a girl named Clarice McClellan, and she's just following him, I guess. Montag deduces that she's his new neighbor and is like, what are you doing out alone at night? Like, let me walk you home. Also, how old are you even? And Clarice says, I'll be watching you. No, actually. She tells him, and I quote, that she is 17 and crazy. 
So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a fair statement for 17-year-olds in general, and hey, at least she's self-aware, but also that's a weird thing to tell a total stranger. But maybe she is actually crazy, because she also proceeds to tell him that he smells bad, which, you know, fair, dude stinks like gasoline for always, and that her favorite activities are looking at things and also smelling things. We learn that she likes nature and is not like other girls or boys. Or anyone, really. She doesn't shave her underarms. Uh, maybe. I don't know. That's never specified. Oh, yeah, it is. She doesn't watch TV or do, like, other future teen shit, so she spends her time thinking of things instead. She asks Montag if he ever reads the books he burns and if he's happy, and Montag is kind of annoyed at these questions, but also super distracted looking at her face. He is all up in Clarice's face, which is apparently glowing and magical and reflective and beautiful and crystalline, and did I already say glowing? Because it is. It's glowing. Because Clarice apparently just has, like, a fucking bug zapper for a face. Oh, it's that acne. Just the oil. Yeah, it's glowing in the in the moonlight. Yeah, her flex. Mm. So shiny. <laughs> her face is shiny in my eye like a big pizza pie. That's the acne. That's really gross. Anyway, they depart, and Montag is like, that was weird. She's weird. But dang, is she pretty and also 17. Yeah. That might have been okay at the time. He's 30. It's creepy. Well, that's a different issue. Um, okay. Montag heads home, assuming his wife Mildred will be passed out in bed listening to her seashells, which is his... By the seashore? No, in bed. Are you not even listening? No. Clearly. This is a weird Bradbury future word for not just headphones, but earbuds specifically, which is pretty impressive for, you know, thinking of earbuds as we know them in, like, 1950. Anyway, Mildred is not in bed. She's lying on the floor next to an empty bottle of sleeping pills. Montag dials up 911, and we get the feeling that this happens kind of a lot, if not specifically to Mildred, to just the populace in general. These dudes who are described as plumbers come to the house and stick a tube down her throat that's described as a suction snake, with, like, a little eye at the end of it, just because, you know, it wasn't fucking creepy enough. And they just jam that down her throat and, uh, clean her blood out. Fifty bucks. Done and done. Like, they even specify, like, fifty bucks pop. Montag then goes to bed and feels weirdly melancholic. Maybe because his wife tried to kill herself? I don't know. What could have precipitated these feelings? Yeah, he's feeling bad. Fifty bucks a suck? You can't get that kind of deal nowadays, you know? Gross. And then he decides that it's time to start having an existential crisis. The next morning, neither of them acknowledge uh, Mildred's sort of attempted suicide moment, though Montag kind of half-heartedly tries to, but all she wants to talk about is how dope their TV situation is. In the Bradbury future, TVs are interactive and on giant wall-sized screens, and the Montag house has a room with three TV walls, and if you send in enough box tops, you get a script and you get to stand on your special TV platform and be a part of the show. I just, I love, I love the box tops thing. It's such a weird little detail, like, send away your box tops and you get to do the TV. But Montag isn't in the mood for TV and walks out into the rain where, of course, we see our manic pixie dream teens splashing around and letting us know that she's still crazy, in case you were wondering, and that rain feels good. It even tastes good. Thanks, Adele. Well, she doesn't want to set fire to the rain. She doesn't want to set fire to anything. He wants to set fire to the rain because he's a fire starter. Yes. Fireman. Set fire 
to the rain. Yep, that's what it. That's what Adele sounds like. You nailed it. You what is Adele here? Is Adele on the podcast with us? Oh my god, it's like she's in the room. But wait, it gets even quirkier. She pulls out a dandelion and is like, hey, you know if you rub this on your chin and it turns your chin yellow, it means you're in love? And Montag is just charmed as all fuck by just all of this. So they rub dandelions on their chin and Clarice gets a yellow chin and is in love, but Montag does not and he is unreasonably pissed off about this. He's like, for your information, I'm super in love and you just used up all the dandelion fluff on yourself, you jerk. But he forgives her pretty quickly as she talks about going to see psychiatrists because she goes for walks in the woods and watches birds and shit. Ray Bradbury is many things, but he is not subtle, and he really wanted to ram his Bradbury future down your throat. Montag is all like, Clarice, you nutty, beautiful weirdo. You said you were 17, right? He really does ask this. And she's like, well, next month anyway. Oh, she's got hotter. <laughs> no. <laughs> You just sound gross. Like, it's not... You just sound gross. <laughs> no, she got ugly. <laughs> but next month, <laughs> she'll be back, baby. And Montag responds by saying she seems somehow so much older than his 30-year-old wife. And yeah, it's totally not icky and a huge red flag when grown-ass men start telling teenage girls how they seem so mature and grown up for their age. Like, Montag doesn't seem like a creep per se, and he never does anything, I guess, but that's still such a creepo, child molesty thing to say. Like, oh, you seem so old for your age. You can come hang with me, the 30-year-old man. Clarice leaves, and the scene ends, and we pick back up at the firehouse as Montag uneasily regards the hound. Ah, the hound. So, you know how firehouse dogs used to be a thing? Like, cute little firehouse Dalmatian? When did they stop being a thing? Is that a thing? Do do firehouses still have Dalmatians? Was that ever really a thing, or was that just in, like, movies? They need dogs. For what? Well, it ain't always safe for the person. They do not- that's not a thing. Well, anyway, this- this isn't that. The hound is more like a dog-sized robot spider, complete with eight legs, used to sniff out, like, I don't know, pure terror. And then it stabs things with the four-inch serrated needle that comes out of its fucking face and pumps the victim full of morphine until they're dead. Just like a real dog. But yeah, this thing creeped the ever-loving fuck out of 13-year-old me. And it creeps the ever-loving fuck out of Montag, too. It's always growling at him, and he's convinced that it has an actual dislike for him, despite his boss, Captain Beatty's argument that it's a robot, and so it can't feel any kind of way about anyone. It's just a simple machine that knows only hunting and murder. Hey, can you hear that? It sounds a lot like foreshadowing. So here's the thing about Dalmatian. Back in the day, May, before cars. Uh Uh-huh. Horses had to pull a fire truck. Uh Uh-huh. In Dalmatians, the horses are biffles. Oh, yeah? And the horses would follow the dogs. So you could train the Dalmatians. You you might not be able to train the horse, but the horse listened to the Dalmatian, which you can train. And so it worked out pretty well. I see. Now, in 2017, Dalmatians are more of a mascot Uh than a work. That's what I would assume. But you still find one at firehouses around the country today. Okay. Like, you probably wouldn't find a hound, a terrifying mechanical nightmare monster with a retractable face needle. Anyway, Montag keeps hanging out with Clarice, and I guess even Bradbury realized how weird this is getting, and he makes sure to have Montag say that, like, being around Clarice makes him feel, quote, like a father. Hello, Clarice. Yeah, yeah, just call... It's me, your father. (laughs) Just call him Daddy, Clarice. (laughs) 
She tells Montag that she doesn't go to school because Bradbury Future School is just TV and sports, apparently. It's a pretty good school. <laughs> Sounds like Texas. Yeah, really. Also, she reveals that six of her friends have been shot in the last year and even more killed in car accidents caused by self-driving cars that speed around at a bazillion miles an hour. Oh, she's going to an urban school. <laughs> Probably Chicago. Oh, jeez. Not Greentown. No, not not uh, Greentown. Uh, no. Not, in my, not in my Greentown. <laughs> After a week of this, Clarice disappears. But it's fine. She's probably just off looking at and or smelling something. At work, Montag continues to feel awkward and weird and existential, asking Beatty if firemen have always started fires, or did they ever maybe used to, I don't know, put them out? And Beatty just shakes his head and laughs like, Oh, Montag, you beautiful, silly man, you. No. And then there's a fire alarm, and they're off to a woman's house whose neighbor snitched on her that she had books in the attic. She quotes a British clergyman who was burned at the stake and refuses to cooperate. Montag starts to burn the books in the attic, but sneaks a book of poems into his pocket. Er, wait, excuse me. His hand does this. Montag has some weird, like, disassociative shit going on where he's just like, Yeah, no, it wasn't me, it was my hand. My evil, evil hand with its dark and impure thoughts, which kind of makes you wonder what his mental situation is when he's jerking off. This makes the chapter that starts, Hello, I am Montag's liver. Make a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> References. Anyway, the woman refuses to leave her burning books and lights herself on fire, which fucks Montag up pretty hard. Then Beatty is able to repeat the quote about the burned priest dude she said earlier, and also he knows where the quote comes from, and that's pretty weird, and it fucks Montag up even more. He comes home and basically has a nervous breakdown, hiding his stolen book under his pillow and crying himself to sleep. He wakes up later and looks at his wife and imagines there is a wall between them. A TV-shaped wall, made of subtlety. He wakes her up and asks if she can remember how they met, and Mildred's like, what? No, it's 3 a.m., what the fuck? And then he asks her if she knows what happened with Clarice, and she's like, I don't know, she died or something, go to bed! And this is as much as we ever find out about whatever happened to Clarice. R.I.P. Clarice, question mark. You looked at and smelled things. The truth is out there. This, this was covered... In a season five episode of The X-Files. Oh? Yeah. Mulder was looking for her? No, Scully was. Ah. She found her. Okay. They had hot sex. Okay, that went to a weird place. Well, Clarice was like old by then. Well, yeah, by by the 90s she would be. All right, guys. They are the rain together. Ew. Guy's nervous breakdown continues the next day, which finds him curled up in a ball, asking Mildred to call Beatty and tell him he's too sick to work because Guy's too much of a wuss to do it himself. He tries to tell her about having to watch a lady fucking burn herself alive, but Mildred doesn't care because that's not TV. And then, who should pull up to the Montag household? Dana Scully, special agent? No. Special agent Fox Mulder? No special agents. A Dalmatian. <laughs> yep, a little Dalmatian named Pongo who comes to bring joy and love into their lives. Wait, was it Douglas Fairbanks? <laughs> it's Beatty. He comes over to comfort Montag and give him a pep talk slash history lesson, you know, like a boss does. Beatty and Montag are, are kind of gay. Just, you know, we're just gonna, gonna put that right out there. Specifically, Beatty is kind of gay for Montag. He cuts him more slack than the other firemen. He's very affectionate towards him. There's a lot of, like, physical touching. He's very, yeah, he's very touchy-feely. He has a definite attachment, and there's a homoerotic undercurrent to their relationship. Montag, though, is mostly just kind of scared of Beatty, but in that awestruck sort of way, that's kinda gay. 
Beatty tells Montag that books are bad because they make people think things, and nobody likes doing that. It's just the worst. Also, books offended people, and there wasn't one book that didn't offend at least someone, so they just burned them all and replaced them with TV, and now it's great. And yeah, Bradbury was really freaked out by watching people burn those books, huh? Beatty goes on to say that that's why the firemen exist, to stamp out stuff that makes people think too hard and get ideas and feel sad and argue with each other and be unhappy. Books, Beatty says, are only going to bum you out. So... Why does Beatty know all of this? And why doesn't Montag know any of this? Like, that's not, I'm not, like, setting you up for anything. That's a legitimate question I have. Why does Montag not know history, and why does Beatty know, like, all of it? Because he just has a better memory. <laughs> I get Like, it, it just seems kind of weird. Older. I mean, he, he's said to be, like, a little older, but, like, it's not like a, he's talking to, like, an 80-year-old man or something. He read the script. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Beatty says that all firemen go through this period of feeling weird and shitty, and if they, I don't know, just happen to take a book they were supposed to have burned home with them, wink, wink, they can even keep it for a whole day. Hypothetically, of course. But then they need to get with the fucking program. And then he pats them on the head and leaves. Montag then shows his wife that, actually, it's not just that one book he stole. He has a whole bunch of stolen books hidden behind their ventilator grill. And he's just like, guess what? Now you know about the books. We're in this together. No, take backsies. And then he tries to read her Gulliver's Travels. And Mildred wants absolutely no part of any of that shit. And honestly, can't say I blame her. Gulliver's Travels is boring as hell. That's, that's my hot take. So instead of going to work, Montag just reads and reads and reads, and the books give him feelings. And Mildred's like, why are you doing this? You're going to get us killed. And Montag is like, you were going to get yourself killed anyway, Captain Sleeping Pills, and we all might die anyway in the constant shadow of several vague and unspecified military conflicts. Mildred retreats back to the TV, and Montag thinks back to an old man he met in the park the other day who had on a big black coat with something clearly hidden in it. Um, butterflies. <laughs> Yes, just butterflies. No, it was this, this dude named Faber, and he used to be an English professor, and he was smuggling some books. Montag took his information, but he let him go. Now, he calls him up and is like, Hey, can we be book buddies? And Faber doesn't trust him, obviously. So Montag is like, I got a Bible, and I'm going to bring it to your house, and then you'll know we're friends. So he rides the subway to Favors, and he tries to read and memorize Bible passages over the distraction of blaring advertisements, and this is just a really good section, because it's, it's just, it's overwhelming. Like, kind of move away for a second. This is probably my favorite part of the whole book, because he's just trying to read, like, this single Bible passage, and he's just assaulted with noise and ads and conversation and just building into this wall of sound that he can't compete with, and he's just trying to understand these lines and, like, commit them to memory, and it's like trying to grab hold of water vapor. This section is appropriately titled The Sand and the Sieve, as the whole experience reminds him of being at the beach as a kid and trying to fill up sieve with sand. Again, Ray Bradbury isn't subtle, but reading it is like an anxiety-inducing experience, and I really just, like, love it a lot. Anyway, Guy gets to Faber's house and shows him the Bible, and that's enough to convince him that he's on the level. So, Faber. Faber is, in no uncertain terms, a weenie. Just a cowardly, limp-dick wuss. And he uses it as an excuse, too. Like, oh, woe is me. I'm too much of a coward to do anything ever. But all Montag wants from him right now is to just help him, like, understand what the hell he's reading in the Bible. And Faber's like, oh, Montag, you beautiful, silly man, you. 
You don't want books. You want meaning. You want the ideas that can be found in the books. And Montag gets real fired up. He's like, hell yeah, that that thing. Yeah, let's let's go steal a bunch of books and make copies and, I don't know, throw them at people on the street. And Faber's like, uh-huh, yeah, sure. And why don't you go plant them in the firemen's houses so they'll have to burn themselves. And Montag's like, yeah, let's do that. And Faber regrets letting this man going through a late-blooming teenage rebellion into his house. Montag thinks about how much literature Beatty seems to have memorized and wonders if he might be of help after all. He asks Faber to help him talk to Beatty, but Faber reminds Montag that he's too much of a scared baby man to actually do anything. But he does give Montag this thing called a green bullet that's essentially just a Bluetooth earpiece. Again, future prediction points to Bradbury. And is like, hey, at least I can talk to you while you do all the dangerous shit and I chill here in my house. Montag returns home to find Mildred has a bunch of friends over, and they're all talking with a detached cheerfulness about the constant shadow of several vague and unspecified military conflicts. And Montag is like, this is dumb, and I hate it. It's time for you guys to experience the power of poetry. And he brings out a book of poems, even as Faber protests in his ear, and Mildred does the same in front of him. Nonetheless, Montag reads Dover Beach. And it's so moving, I guess, that it makes one of the women cry. And the others are like, look what you did. You made her have an emotion. This just proves that books are bad. They leave, and Faber's like, hey, maybe don't do anything too crazy now, but also go to the firehouse and see Beatty. And Montag's pretty scared. Like, he's really nervous, to the point where he freezes up on the way there. And Faber has to, like, coax him, going like, go on, you can do it. It won't be that bad. Have courage. It's like I'm right there with you, except I'm not really, because fuck that. So Montag gets to the firehouse, where he tries to join in a game of cards, but things quickly get weird. Beatty knows something's up, and keeps tossing out weird, contradictory literary quotes to get a rise out of Montag. Like, man, don't these quotes prove that books are super confusing and overcomplicated and pointless? And Faber's like, you know, don't, don't engage him, don't rise to the bait. And Beatty grabs Montag by the wrists and is like, Man, your pulse sure is racing there, huh? This isn't a weird thing for your boss to be doing. Just grabbing you and casually commenting on how fast your heart's beating, as co-workers do? Luckily, the fire alarm goes off. They end up at Montag's house, which means, you know, maybe angrily screaming poetry at your wife's friends was a bad idea, huh? Mildred is leaving the house with a suitcase, presumably while giving her husband the finger, and Faber is screaming in his ear to fucking book it out of there, and Beatty is flicking a lighter at Montag, having some kind of monologue about fire and how sexy it is, and he tells Montag to burn his house down. And he does, and he actually kind of enjoys it. It's cleansing, even if he's also burning the books that are inside it. He's also at least burning the TVs, so, you know, fuck you, Mildred. But Beatty's like, this is a punishment! You're not supposed to be enjoying it! And he smacks him, knocking the earpiece out of Montag's head. He picks it up and hears Faber and is like, we're gonna come get you! And so Montag, excuse me, Montag's hands, because, yeah, we're doing that again, point his flamethrower at Beatty, who's like, I dare you! I double dare you, motherfucker! And he does! Montag burns the shit out of Beatty until there is nothing but ashes left. Whoosh. That's not how people burn. He flamethrowed him so hard that he did, his bones just weren't there anymore. No more bones. Flamethrowed away. Whoosh. What, what degree Fahrenheit is that? The bazillion. <laughs> then he finally goes to run, except that there's just one thing he forgot about. Tie shoes. No! You left the oven on. Well, that really wouldn't matter at this point. His house is burned down. 
It's the hound. Oh, I thought it was the rain. He forgot to <laughs> set fire <laughs> to the, the rain. Well, now Watch he's... it burn. <laughs> well, now Thought he uh, he has to set fire to the hound because it's leaping the fuck out of nowhere and attacking him and jabbing its horrifying face needle into his leg. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. <laughs> Stabbing all the time. So a uh, guy manages to set the hound on fire and get away, but now his leg is numb and he has to hobble his way to Faber's where he learns that he's now a fugitive. And Faber is actually like just really like jazzed. He's like, oh my God, you're not dead. This is great. I feel so alive. And Montag's like, dude, you didn't even do anything. Didn't I? <laughs> didn't I though? And Faber asks what Montag plans to do next. And he's like, get the fuck out of town because I'm a wanted man and there's an evil robot dog hunting me. I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> Faber tells him to run out of town across a river where the hound can't follow and then to follow a railroad line out to the country and that Faber will leave later and meet him in St. Louis. Sure you will, Faber. Montag runs for it and barely escapes the hound, jumping into the river where he floats downstream and decides the sun is evil because it's always burning. Like, look, Cut the guy a break. He, he's had a really rough day. He climbs out of the water and wanders the countryside for a while before finding a group of people huddled around a campfire who call out to him by name. Which is kind of weird, but it's okay. It's just a bunch of dudes who've been watching the news talk about him on a portable TV. Their leader introduces himself as Granger and tells Montag that they're a band of book hobos. They're intellectuals and teachers and what have you living on the fringes of society, having memorized entire books so that they can be saved, even if all the copies have been destroyed. Not very different from today. How do you figure? All these people, they live on the fringes of society. <laughs> tend to gather around each other. Mm. What are you people? Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, that's it. Like, they just live in the woods, heads full of books, just chilling, waiting for society to collapse so that they can rebuild it with, like, what? The collected poems of, like, William Wordsworth? All they need <laughs> is Denzel Washington to show up because he has the Bible memorized in his head. Yeah, because but he's blind. And so the only version that was left were Braille books. And why there are no Braille books? Because... There might be Braille books oh, and we just see. don't mention them. Look, the point is, you know... I like Paradise Lost as much as the next person, but that ain't going to help you survive the fucking apocalypse. Like, did anyone memorize the Boy Scout survival guide? That might be a little more useful. Speaking of the apocalypse, it shows up right on time as the constant shadow of several vague and unspecified military conflicts is no longer a shadow, but a bunch of jet bombers that level the city. Just like that. Montag contemplates that Mildred and Faber are dead now, but the full impact of watching a city explode hasn't quite hit him yet. He asks Granger what happens now, and Granger replies that they're gonna walk around and see what's what. Then Montag thinks about the Bible. Then the book ends. Yep. That's Fahrenheit 451. Then it kind of peters out there. Ray Bradbury blows up a city and then just goes, mm, book people. Gonna rebuild society. Because they have... Walt Whitman memorized in their head. But see, it left a lot of ground for the sequel Fahrenheit 9-11 to step in in 2004 and really take off. <laughs> so about that, actually, Ray Bradbury got really fucking pissed at Michael Moore for using the title for Fahrenheit 9-11. Um, and he said it had nothing to do with politics or anything, but that he was just very cheesed at the fact that Moore didn't even ask him for permission or anything like, hey, bro, can I use your title for my documentary? Which, I mean, big shock there. It's Michael Moore. He's dick. But yeah, as Bradbury was concerned, like, he just 
straight up stole it. So he, he was very angry about that. So Fahrenheit 451 was adapted into a movie in 1966 by French New Wave director Francois Truffaut. And if you're wondering what French New Wave is, it actually pioneered a lot of modern film style, like long tracking shots and stylistic jump cuts and that kind of thing. Also, the story's mostly focused on intense existential ennui, like, Oh, the 60s, they are so depressing. Life is but a dark void. Because, you know, the French. So that's kind of an interesting choice of dude to direct Fahrenheit 451. The production was done in French, but the movie was shot in English, and the script was in English and partially written by Truffaut himself. Wait, wait, wait. Would the challenge have been greater if the script was in French, but it was filmed in English? Well, because here's the thing. <laughs> Is the script usually written in one language and filmed in another? The, 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 it's a French production. Everyone involved in production is French. They're shooting in English. The script is English. Truffaut partially wrote the script. You want to know how much English he knows? A lot. Pretty much none. Barely any. Which is why he said he greatly prefers the dubbed French version. The tagline, though, um, of this movie is excellent. It's, Aflame with the excitement and emotions of tomorrow! Which is just really good. Today? Yeah, today! So there are big differences in the story. All of the cool sci-fi shit is pretty much dropped, including the Hound, which, like, what the fuck? I mean, okay, I guess that would have been hard to make it look cool in 1966, but at least try, man, it's the Hound! The other biggie is that Clarice is no longer a teenage girl, but a 20-some-odd school teacher, which, yes, good move, good choice, much less weird. They also chose to have the same actress portray both her and Montag's wife, which is very French New Wave. Also, she lives happily ever after with Montag, which is very not French New Wave. Mixed perception. People were like, eh, yeah. People like it more today. If you're wondering what Bradbury thought of these changes, he was super about them. He loved that Clarice lived, which kind of begs the question... Why not have just done that in the first place? I'm not saying I'm, like, down with this. It, it's just weird to me. And when he adapted the book into a stage play in the 70s, he kept a lot of the changes Truffaut made, including the Clarice being, like, a grown-ass woman and living with Montag. There you go. So that's interesting. So there have been multiple stage adaptations. There was an authorized graphic novel in 2009. It's pretty good. Um, the art's very contrast heavy with like shadows and such for any comic nerds out there it looks a lot like the batman graphic novel the long halloween that it's like a lot of muted tones very limited color palette like it's pretty good as of this recording hbo has a tv movie version in the works that's slated for 2018 with michael b jordan as montag which like all right cool i'm down sophia batelli as clarice you will know her as the sexy mummy and uh, what's interesting is she's actually five years older than Michael B. Jordan, so glad to see they're avoiding that creepy shit. They're probably going to, I guess, be going for, like, a different kind of dynamic. And in what might be the most perfect casting, Michael Shannon is beauty. Like, that's that's going to be good. There's literally just one production still right now online, but it's a good-looking still. It's a very good-looking picture, and I'm honestly, like, pretty optimistic about it. I hope it's good, because it looks like it would be cool. Oh, yeah, Here, here's a good thing um, that we did not mention during our banned book special. The book got censored a lot. Then in the 50s, like when it first came out, there were censored versions for high schoolers specifically because, you know, irony. And the things that were censored were weird choices. Like, a drunk man became a sick man. 
and uh, they changed, like, someone cleaning out their belly button to, like, cleaning out their ears, which is just a weird, like, why do you feel the need, like, high schoolers can't read that? It's so strange. And then, you know, they get rid of, like, the hills and the dams, etc. In 2006, parents got mad because characters in the book burned the Bible. You also are <laughs> mentioning they were upset by the depiction of firefighters. Mm. Firefighters, you see, are heroes. <laughs> And this book is not showing them to be the heroes that they are. No. And they burn the Bible. Like, like Jesus, that's going to give me a fucking aneurysm. Yes, the Bible burning in the context of the book is bad. Montag likes the Bible. Bradbury didn't write the book like, woo, burn them fucking Bibles. Like, holy shit. You read two sentences of the book, clearly, and then you're just like, it's bad. Burn, burn a Bible. Like, fuck me. Or I, like, pop a blood vessel about this shit. RJ. So, so this was your your first experience with Fahrenheit 451, and apparently with Ray Bradbury in general. Which, like, what? So, how did you not read the Velt? That's such a good short story. I never even heard of that. That's the one where it's the kids in the future house, and they have the playroom that's like virtual reality, and they keep making it do virtual Africa with like lions on the planes and shit and their parents are weirded out and they're like, "Can you maybe stop?" And the kids are like, "No," and it's implied. Well. Read the Vel. It's really good. How do it's you a spell it, this word. What word are you saying? V e l d t. That's not a word. Yes, it is. All right. The African. Oh my God! Do we have to Google this right now? There's a dead mouse song named after the short story. That's not a word. Yes, though. it is. That's the name of a short story. No. Oh my God! Don't it's a word. Me. It, it it's descriptive of the landscape in that part of Africa. Velt is a type of wide-open rural landscape in southern Africa, particularly is a flat area covered in, like, grasses and shit. That's called a savanna. The made-up so word. I have two words. One word suffices. It's still a real word, and you're still an idiot. Read the Velt. It's a very short story. It's very cool. Um, Don't anyway. read. Don't read. Reading <laughs> is dangerous. Do not read. What reading did you, is a waste of time. What did you think of this? Good or bad? Good. Yeah? Yep. Why? It's a good book. I like the descriptions of a potential future. I think he captures a lot from the 50s looking forward. I like Adele, so I like tasting the rain and being in the rain in general. <laughs> now, The Hound is pretty good. You know what's scarier than a hound with a needle face? What? Hummingbirds of fangs. Yeah, all right. That's fair. Yeah, they just zip-zap and they get you. They get you fast. Tell I, I, Ray Ray. I, I suppose I can't argue with that. We need to edit this book. He is quite dead. Tell his estate. <laughs> Take the hound out, put the hummingbird in with the fangs, and that <laughs> they probably would have left in the movie. Uh. Megan. RJ. Your thoughts on Fahrenheit 9-11. Oh, God. Your thoughts. I don't remember. I watched that documentary like once in school, and it was stupid, because Michael Moore is stupid. On Fahrenheit 451. I mean, I feel like I've already made them pretty clear. I, I like the book pretty okay. There's a lot of really good writing and description in it. But it's also just kind of ridiculous and weird. And the the ending, I've always had a problem with. I'm You know, when I read it as a kid, I was like, this ending is bullshit. And rereading it again as an adult, I'm still like, this ending is bullshit. Uh, my favorite Bradbury stuff is like, Something Wicked This Way Comes and, and The Martian Chronicles. But no, I mean, overall, it's a good book. If you didn't give it a fair shake when you were a high school freshman, give it another shot. It's a quick read. It's a short book. Well, you had to pay to write it. Yeah, there you go. Books are short when you got to pay by the word. Or pay by the 
the typewriter time, whatever the fuck. Oh, this this episode coming out the day after my B-Day. So I guess when you're done listening to this, wish me a happy belated birthday. How's yeah. it feel turning 40? Feels good. Feels real great. Feels sexy. Next I've... year, I'm turning 25. Next year, you're turning 62. This episode's podcast pals are the ladies of the dimly lit podcast, Carly and Katrina. So they kind of do what we do. So, you know, I'm squinting at them. I'm like, yo, watch yourself. But they're significantly cuter and adorable. And whereas we sort of breeze breakneck through uh, various literary works, they will do a reading episode and then they'll come back and do a rehash episode so that you'll actually learn a thing. So go and give them a listen. But, you know, not too many listens. No, I'm being a butt. Go listen to them a bunch. Any books you read in school that you'd like to throw 20,000 leagues under the sea? Does the Odyssey feel like an odyssey to get through? Wonder what temperature you'd have to burn Ray Bradbury's novels at? If you often ask yourself these questions and more, check out our podcast. I'm Katrina. And I'm Carly. We're the co-hosts of Dimly Lit. We read classic literature and try to figure out what the hell is going on. You can find us everywhere you get your podcasts. Mothership Media. Our next episode will be out on November 23rd. That's good, because you're going to get a lot of listens on Thanksgiving. Oh, fuck, huh? Well, we'll figure it out. So while you're sitting around enjoying Thanksgiving with your family, don't talk to old Uncle Sal, whose politics you disagree with. Get out the Bluetooth speaker. Put on Oh No Lit Class. It's what George Washington would have wanted. We're going to bring families together. Yeah. Yeah. By saying fuck a bunch. No. <laughs> if you come back to this every every other week because you're a masochist, I guess, consider subscribing to us on iTunes and leaving us ratings and reviews. See our uh, ad in Men's Fitness. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. We actually just made... They uh, already are following us if they're listening to this. Not necessarily, and I was about to say a new thing, so shut up. We just made a Facebook group recently where you can... Which is better than the Facebook page because you can go in and, like, post your own book memes and shit and talk amongst yourselves. You don't even need me there. It's great. Like, you would know who's already following us. You haven't looked at our social media ev- ever. Not even once. I didn't know we have a Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, because I just made it, you dickbat. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to Best Day for our theme song. Until next time, this was Oh No Lit Class. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Bye. Edit you out. I edit the cat in. (laughs) Best don't know what class episode ever. What happened to Megan? She sounds like a cat. Megan, you're sounding very catty today. (laughs) About an hour worth of those jokes.